0: The new year is as much a time to look forward as it is to look back. What are we going to do differently in 2024? Where do we leave money on the table in 2023? As you craft your strategy to make 2024 the best year yet, consider leveraging better tools to get a better outcome. Yelp Guest Manager pairs the largest consumer network in the country with reservation and waitlist software designed to ensure you're as busy as possible. From large parties to last-minute diners, capture 100% of the demand for your restaurant. To see the growth potential for your restaurant, visit restaurants.yelp.com forward slash full comp for a free evaluation and start 2024 strong. Now here we go. Everything's just got to
1: be working right all the time, and I think that's one of the things that's so challenging. And I don't think a lot of customers, the guests, appreciate how much goes into getting a simple meal on a plate to you in a restaurant. How complicated it
0: is. Welcome to Full Comp, a show offering insight into the hospitality industry. Featuring restaurateurs, thought leaders, and innovators. Served up on the house. Are you on track to hit your profitability goals for this year? If you're struggling to hit your numbers, I might be able to help. Here's how I do it. Every year I offer five complimentary growth sessions to restaurant owners looking to scale. In this call, we'll examine your current situation to see what is and isn't working. We'll identify your growth possibilities by the close of the year. We'll uncover the number one thing holding you and your business back. And we'll develop a growth plan that will get your business results. Go to planwithjosh.com to schedule one of the five complimentary growth sessions. They're going to go quickly. They always do. The idea of venture capital doesn't typically enter the mind of most restaurant owners, but those opportunities do exist. Today, we're sitting down with Michael Schatzberg, an industry veteran on the lookout for the next big restaurant concept. Today, we discuss what it takes to win in this competitive market and what makes a restaurant concept truly investable.
1: I think for us, when we started Dukes, look, things were very, very different in New York City back in those days. People went out for lunch. Fast casual hadn't even been invented yet. There was no such thing. So everyone went out for lunch. There was very little delivery. So just business was very different. Lunches were really busy. Your dinners were really busy. The bar was hopping. I mean, people were smoking cigarettes in the restaurants. It was just different. So I think one thing that we learned over time was as technology started creeping its way into hospitality, it's been really slow. The hospitality industry has been incredibly slow to embrace technology where it is today and still in the early innings. And I think one of the things I recognized was the industry was being completely changed and revolutionized through a lot of embracement of tech and innovation and online ordering and uh, and digital payments and things like that started becoming more and more popular. And then, of course, fast forward to COVID, that accelerated it tremendously. So I think that was kind of like for us recognizing that, On the restaurant side of things, we were going to stick to move into a direction of finer dining, elevated service and elevated food and dining experiences and really put a lot of time and energy into our investing in technology, innovation and emerging brands and things like that. So that's kind of like where I am now. So really started in the earliest things for us. I mean, it was like almost 30 years ago of restaurants and seen the evolution and change and now we're just completely different. I mean, the one thing that to me I love is that people love food, people love drink. You got to eat and you got to drink and we love hospitality, I love making I love seeing people happy, I love making people happy like that, so it's great. So we're just having a blast and adding this new element to our business with branded on the venture side over the last couple of years, it's just been great. And now being able to invest in emerging brands and tech companies and kind of taking all the experiences I've had over the years and being able to help some of these companies grow and accelerate. And and some of the mistakes I've already made, I can then kind of share with these founders, whether it be a restaurants or tech. It's just awesome. It's great. I love it. And I think 25, 30 years in restaurants, it's great. And we still own and operate a bunch of restaurants, over a dozen restaurants.
0: Let's talk about that. So through your path, you mentioned mistakes made. I definitely want to delve into those, but I also want to start with your strengths. So over 30 years, if you get good at only one thing in this world, it's figuring out what you're best in the world at. For you, what is it and how does it function in a way that creates an impactful restaurant experience?
1: I think uh, for us, I really believe that we have a very good knack for understanding what people like. And I think I have a good understanding of what people like, what gets people going. And I think we can take that on the restaurant side, on what drinks they like, what kind of food they like, what kind of atmosphere, what kind of music, what kind of lighting. All those things that go into the restaurant that is customer facing, I think we have a knack for that. And then taking that and then applying it towards, okay, well, if I know what people like and what they like to drink and what they like to eat – and what kind of experience do they like, we can then apply that into our investing strategy. Cause if we know what I think gets people going, I think I have a good understanding of if something is, it's a good for an operator, is a technology something an operator needs and wants, is it a nice to have or is it a must have? And then I think when we see emerging brands, same thing, I think we can kind of identify like, yeah, this is awesome. This is gonna be a winner and this is gonna grow. And this is, yeah, people are gonna dig this and they're gonna dig it, not just here, they're gonna dig it everywhere.
0: So for me, unconsciously, it was very similar. I always got product market fit. The way I've described it is, is that I figured out early on that I'm not special. That like what I like, everybody likes. And so in (laughs) serving (laughs) myself, truly, and so like in in being completely average, right, and being able to serve myself, and being able to market to myself, I'm able to market to the masses. And as many successes and failures as you've been a part of, tell me if you think I'm wrong, but. In my life, it's always come down to product, market, fit before anything else, right? That's
1: 100%, man, because you can have a great menu and a great idea and a great looking space and a lot of the things I mentioned, the muse, the lighting, everything, the design, everything great, but it's in like the worst location or the worst city or it's just in the wrong place and it's not going to work. Because it doesn't fit. <laughs> right, 100 you know? so, so many things have to go right. So it's not, it's not like, oh, this failed because, of, no, it was a good menu. The food was good. Everything. You just picked the wrong place. It was the wrong location. It could be the wrong city, the wrong state,
0: the wrong country. Who knows? It's just the wrong planet maybe. And at the end of the day, I mean, you, there are really only two ways to go about doing this, right, which is where you analyze the community and you give them exactly what they need. Or alternatively, you have a vision for what you want to do. But then you've got to find the community where that
1: fits. Yeah, 100%.
0: You help grow and scale brands. So what does growth look like in your mind? Somebody comes to you, they've got three to five locations, they're doing really well, and they're like, we're ready to scale out. What is your advice? How do you help guide them on that path?
1: Yeah, no, it's a great question. I think we recognized early on that we were better at finding great locations, identifying a great location, identifying a great chef, and what that location needed. What what was missing in that neighborhood? And that's great. And so we're not big on multi-unit. This is something that we've recognized. We've tried it. And we didn't do we're not great at that. There are people that are amazing at that. So I think if you've got three to five units and you believe that you have what it takes to scale and grow this, you certainly need to think about, is the franchising the right model or is it corporate owned the right model? Should I just keep on opening up my own stores? Those are the, some of the questions you have to start thinking about. Because I think a lot of people, when they think about multi-unit, they immediately franchising comes out of their mouth and they immediately think about franchising. And I think that it's not right for everybody. It's not the right fit for every brand and it's not the right fit for every operator. It's just, it's a different business. And there are people that are awesome at franchising. And I think it's just different. So I think those are the kind of things you gotta think about. And a lot of people make mistakes and like, oh, I'm gonna franchise and that's how I'm gonna grow. And they didn't really understand what that meant and they weren't prepared for it and they fail. You can flip it. Maybe it's corporate growing it your own way you know, organically and they also miscalculate that because it's very capital intensive. Those are some of the quick questions that come to mind. Back to your point about product market fit. I mean, a lot of people, just cause something resonates in one town or one city, it doesn't mean it's gonna work everywhere. So sometimes you also gotta just think, do your homework just because you're doing well, I'm just, you know, Chicago or New York or, or Miami, whatever it may be, and you have three to five stores, That doesn't necessarily, is that going to try, like, do you want to grow in Miami? Do you want to just grow in Florida? Or are you like, oh, I want to bring this across the country? It doesn't always work. Some stuff that people love in Cali, Southern Cal in particular, it doesn't necessarily resonate in New York. And certainly things in New York don't resonate all over the country. You don't see tremendous, a lot of brands starting in New York City. You don't see it a lot. Usually it's the West East, right?
0: 100%.
1: You're a Cali guy, Right. I am, I am. That's where the cool stuff happens. All the cool stuff happens in Cali. And then years later, we in New York, we discover it. We're like, holy shit, look at this. And then you're like, dude, that's been in Cali for 10 years,
0: man. <laughs> yes. It's because there's a diverse demographic, right? So you're able to try things, and there's probably a large enough market to satisfy whatever demand you need.
1: Yeah, Cali's like a country.
0: It is. It is technically the fourth largest economy in the world. And the North and the South are like so different, right?
1: Like just talk about the resonating. and like So something in San Francisco, maybe that won't even resonate in Southern California. Sure. And that's like, you shouldn't be growing down there. Maybe you got to go up to like Washington or to Midwest, I should say.
0: 100%. One of the other issues in California is it's just really expensive to do business here. So I think that the reason that you see so many brands starting here and then branching out is because, thousands die, right? So the ones that you see are just exceptionally strong brands, because if you can make it for 10 years in California, you can make it anywhere on the planet.
1: Yeah, I would say one thing New York and Cali have in common is, man, I know we say that we're really business friendly and everything like that, but I don't know if we really are business friendly. I think we make it really, really hard and complicated to get businesses open. I know in New York, it's like, We have a book that the city puts out to help restaurant operators know what you need to do to open a restaurant in the five boroughs. It's like 40,000 pages long of every department that you need to contact for everything. It's an open flame permit, the fire, the this, the air conditioning permit. It's just so much red tape. And it really just it just seems like it could be a lot easier for us to open up restaurants and generate revenue and pay taxes and hire an employee people. It seems like we make it really, really complicated, but maybe that's the nature of bureaucracy.
0: (laughs) Yeah, right? That's how they make their money. You've opened a ton of places, and for people that don't know you and don't know branded strategic hospitality, how would you describe what you do for a living and then what the company does?
1: So branded... Hospitality, it's a venture investment company. It is a venture investment platform with assets under management. And we look to deploy capital into emerging technology companies, emerging brands and innovation, things like that. I mean, that is 100% essentially what Branded does day in and day out. And then we have a lot of support to help that thesis, but we are good stewards of capital. We deploy our own capital, we get LP capital, and we find what we believe are great investments that are going to give great returns to us and our partners. That is what we do. And we are only focused in on the hospitality and food service business. It's the only place we play. And so I don't invest in biotech. We don't invest in energy and real estate. We don't do that. Having said that, we also support our that business through we own and operate restaurants. That helps with that thesis because I get to vet and test things. And I really understand the business more. So if we can try things in our restaurants, that just helps me understand, is this tech? Is this innovation? Is this brand something good? So I think that we are very good at marketing. So I believe that we do a lot of events, a lot of trade shows, conferences, all to support our partner companies, our portfolio. So we go to a lot of conferences and trade shows. And really, we have fifty over 50 investments today. When I was in Chicago at the National Restaurant Show, I mean, we're like 23 of our portfolio companies there showing in one way or another. And so for us to go out there and throw a cocktail party and have our portfolio companies there and have operators there and have investors there, it's just bringing the community together in another city. And that's, I think for us, we love hospitality is in our DNA. We love the community. Even our podcast that we do, and we talked about this together. I mean, our podcast really just started to It was just kind of letting the world know that this is a company that we invested in. Here's the founder. Listen, how cool the stuff they're doing. And then somebody told me, well, you got to do a podcast weekly if you want to get any traction. So we ran out of investments because we only have 50. So we had to just start getting other guests and we started bringing other guests on. And we just have a blast doing it. And really, it's just another way to support our business, letting people know that that's what we do. We invest and help accelerate the growth of companies in this space.
0: When it comes to restaurant concepts, what makes a restaurant concept investable in your mind?
1: Yeah, it's like a similar strategy. It's again, you got to get that team. And obviously, you have to like what the product is that they're pushing out. And I think, and you kind of get a feel for, is it something that you see that if they have three or five units, let's just say, and is it something that has some social buzz. Is there a story about this? I think you need a good story and you need some good, because social media has become so important with these brands today. So if it's completely obscure and no one knows about it, and it's not really a good story, I'm not as thrilled about it. But when you hear a little bit of buzz, especially with like some of the younger generation, I just think that that's the kind of stuff that we like to see when just making sure that, I don't know, today, I just feel like stuff's just got a little coolness factor to it. Because you are trying to go from five units to maybe let's say twenty-five units, and then maybe fifty units, so you, you got to say, like, yeah, can this be supported by that many units? Is this brand that kind of stuff? And then, and then, obviously, you get into the economics. But even before you really dig into the economics, because obviously, if unit economics aren't good, then we're not going to get involved. But before you even dig into it, you just got to be like, is this cool? Do I like it? Do I care?
0: One of the big advantages to working with an investment group like yours, in my mind, is that you supply more than money. How do you help brands that you invest in get better and bigger faster?
1: It's a great question. I got to tell you, we have discussions about this all the time because I think that some people are just looking for money and they come to the table with money. And by the way, that's really, really important. If you're growing and need money, it's great. And I don't think any investor looks at themselves as non-strategic. I don't think that most investors be like, yeah, I'm not strategic. I just cut you a check and that's all I do. And I I think most investors feel like I'm cutting a check and I'm going to be helpful and I'm going to try and help you do the best you can because I want to help my investment. But at the end of the day, I think for us, I mean, we obviously look at ourselves truly as strategic investors because this is where we play. And so in the early innings of some of these, let's just go on brands for a minute, A lot of their tech stack hasn't really been fully matured yet. It's not even close. They haven't made a lot of decisions. They're just starting to think about decisions. Maybe they made a decision and it's the wrong. It's a great opportunity to correct the mistake they made in some of their tech and innovation, if that makes sense. So one of the things that we certainly like to do is just make them aware of all the different options that are out there, some of the good companies that are doing great things. And not every company is not the right fit for every brand, but just helping them navigate the waters of kind of the technology side of things. Because on the the brand side, we're not really looking. I mean, we own and operate high-end, full certified fine-dime, but that's not where we're investing. When we're investing, we're investing in emerging brands that are looking to grow and scale, not one-offs. So I think that's something we're incredibly helpful with, and I think connecting the dots. So I think we have a real great network where, like I said before, we travel really all over the country, all over the world, and are really great networkers. And I think that the ability to connect founders with other folks that might be strategically partnering, whatever that may be, I think we're great at that. It could be uh, procurement and supply chain, it could be just customer engagement technology, it could be loyalty, just giving them really sound advice. But I think it's advice that we've learned or we've made so many mistakes on our restaurant business over the years. And you learn so much from those mistakes, it's awesome. And so we can kind of, again, the founders don't have to listen to us, but it's nice as a sounding board that we can help and we can at least just throw out some of our ideas, use them, don't use them, but at least you're hearing
0: it. And it comes from a place of experience, which I think would be incredibly valuable. I
1: believe so. And I believe that when we are talking to some of the founders that we've invested, I believe that they recognize that all advice is not equal. If it's Dr. Uh, whatever's name is that wrote a check for $250,000 and he has an idea, I'm not saying it's a bad idea, it might be the greatest idea ever, but I think maybe they take that differently than one of our folks saying something about this. And I find in the restaurant business, it's funny though, I just find that everyone has an opinion and everyone has an idea. And I think we laugh. I think it's it's one industry that you go to your, you, know, you take your car in for service. It's not like you start having a discussion with the mechanic about what's needed. You don't even see the mechanic. You just bring it in and they call you, say, your car's ready. And they tell you, you know, 500 bucks. And they give you some old parts in a bag. and They say, hey, we replaced replace these. You know, yeah, they were, they were bad. You know, you're like, oh, okay, great. Thank you very much. In the restaurant business, hospitality, I feel like everyone feels that they understand the business. Because everyone has been out for dinner. Everyone orders online. Everyone knows food. And everyone's probably cooked something. Grilled cheese, a steak, an omelet. Everyone's done that. So everyone's like, look, I can cook and I've been out, I've made reservations. I know this business.
0: Yeah, right. Why like so many people get into it, right? Yeah, like I have an opinion. What's your guy?
1: This is what you should do. Have you ever owned a restaurant? No. You ever worked in a restaurant? Uh-huh. ever built a restaurant? Uh-huh. And what the hell do you know? (laughs) Well, I've eaten out a lot. Okay, keep
0: doing it, baby. (laughs) Right? Keep going, man. Support the restaurants. You mentioned that there's kind of inherent failure baked into like every entrepreneurial venture. I'm sure that some of the brands you've invested in have done incredibly well and some have struggled. For the ones that have struggled, what were the common issues that you found?
1: I think some founders fail to recognize, A, It's really hard to raise money and it takes a really long time. And I think a lot of founders don't really understand that. They just think that, oh, I have an idea and I'm going to be raised money. So I think that being undercapitalized is always a big problem. And I would also add that whatever you think it's going to cost is probably going to cost two times that. So I think they underestimate costs and that could go on brands and go on tech. They just underestimate their costs of what it's going to cost them. And I think another thing I found certainly on the tech side is it's really hard to sell (laughs) technology and you got to sell a lot of it to a lot of restaurants to build scale and build numbers. Look at some of these legacy, the big tech companies in our industry that are rock stars and they're great. The open tables that have been around for 20 something years, they're 25 years old, let's say. And I'm just throwing out, I think it's a guesstimate. I think it's a solid number, but I think they have 70,000 restaurants on their platform. So just think about this country has, just in America, we have a million restaurants. And I'm saying they're all right for Open Table, obviously, but with a million restaurants. Open Table, this monster company, worldwide, global, global leader on reservations, 70,000. So I think also they underestimate. Sometimes the founders talk up the TAM, the TAM. Look how the market, it's so big. Yes, it is a really big market, a big, big market. But man, it's really fragmented and really hard to sell it. It's just really hard. It's a lot of restaurants and it's really hard to sell to a lot of restaurants, a lot of onesies. It would be great if you could just be like sell one restaurant brand and they have a million locations. Be like, great, but it's just not that way. There's a lot of guys with 10, 20, 50, 100. And there's a lot of them. So it's really hard. I think they fail to recognize how expensive and hard it is to sell.
0: Well, and I think outside of tech, the same is true for restaurateurs, right? That you've got restaurant founders that think, look, when I opened that bar in Hollywood, we made money from day one. And so I thought that's how it was for everyone. Every time. How hard is it to make money? I came out of nightclubs. You printed money. I opened a bar. I printed money. I opened a fine dining restaurant. I ate shit for years. Because you just don't realize how hard it is, how expensive it is. And you also don't think use case for every tier of dining. The TAM for a fine dining restaurant has to be so much larger than a dive bar in Hollywood because of frequency, right? People go to a dive bar every day. They'll go to a fine dining restaurant, the best fine dining restaurant in the world, once to twice a year. So you need a much larger market to keep that thing full.
1: It's a great point, Josh. It really is a great point. Going to get back to the restaurant side and hospitality, we talk to our team on the restaurant side about how fortunate you are to have a guest come into your restaurant. And you take it for granted. Don't, because they have so many choices, certainly in New York and L.A. I mean, there's just so many choices. You could probably pick a different restaurant every day in New York city, there's 22,000 restaurants. So literally there's 365 days a year. You couldn't eat in every restaurant. I mean, do some quick math. I'm not a math guy, but you, do some, you every day that. You restaurant. you still take it years and years and years to get to 22,000. You know what I mean? There's just so many choices. So, to be successful, to your point, yeah, there's a lot of people, but they got a lot of choices too, so you got to really be on your game. Everything's just got to be working right all the time, and I think that's one of the things that's so challenging, and I don't think a lot of customers, the guests, appreciate how much goes into getting that burger, just a burger or a spaghetti meal, just a simple meal on a plate to you in a restaurant, how complicated it is.
0: That was part of our marketing. I mean, on our menus for the fine dining restaurant, it said that the person that showed up to begin the process of creating your meal showed up at eight o'clock this morning. And it's six o'clock at night.
1: I was about to say, did they know that those, like somebody yesterday or or six o'clock in the morning started making the stock, baking the breads, whatever it is. I mean, someone started that early in the morning or the day before, just so you can have dinner tonight. And then tomorrow, it starts all over again. 100%.
0: 100%. And look, I think that people go out because they want it to feel effortless, right? So a huge part of our obligation is to make it seem like no effort is required to put on this amazing performance. But I think it's also really hamstrung us, right? Because we have, as an industry, artificially depressed prices, right? So that burger that cost $24 today should have cost $24 five years ago, and today it should probably cost 30 and so they think that it should be easier and cheaper than it is. And the only brands that have sprinted have figured out a way to message that in a way that is accessible.
1: I always find it interesting. It's a great point. I find that interesting. I travel quite a bit and certainly would love to travel and I love to get out of America and I love to travel to Europe in particular. And most countries outside of America, I don't have the exact, but most countries outside of the America, there's no tipping. It isn't part of the culture. It's not part of the DNA. You yeah, know, maybe have a coffee, a throw, a dollar or something like that. But for the most part, there's no tipping. And I know in this country, there are many operators, Danny Meyer, a legend, tried it. Like many operators have tried it. And I think about that. I'm like, so you just brought up cost. If we did away with it, so basically the customer is helping to pay the employees, right? To cut, right? So if we did away with it, would we have to raise all our prices by 22%? Yeah, And because you just talked about pricing in Europe, there's no tipping, but I don't, it's not like everything, like I go out when I'm there, I go for dinner, like I don't see like, oh my God, everything is so, except that must be because there's no tipping. No, I find it to be quite the contract. I actually find the price to be reasonable and maybe even less than here. So I don't know. It's a a weird phenomenon. I haven't done too much research. I was just thinking about it right here today. That's live stuff right there. That's chatty thinking right on the show.
0: (laughs) That is, You bring up a really interesting point there. I've never thought about the dichotomy between international and here. Yeah. No, because I'm just curious. Like you say, like if tomorrow we
1: said, all right, no more tipping in America. And we all agree. Okay. We all agree. Okay. Well now these employees have to get paid. Would our payroll just go poof? Be like, oh, holy shit. No restaurants making money anymore. It's really weird because everyone complains as an operator. I've complained about labor since I started doing, since I been in the business, there's never a time that I woke up or I got to the restaurant and I was like, oh, you know what? Labor's really inexpensive in our restaurants today. It is, it's, it's, thank goodness we solved that one. It's, it's always been a problem. You always looked at your labor costs and you're always like, God damn I got to cut some hours. I got to cut some hours. How do I cut some hours? How do I do things? And I'm just like, well, if the tips didn't pay them, right. Or, you know, at least certainly make up the difference, but whatever the wages, blah, blah, blah boy, that would really change the economics of a restaurant. It'd make a bad, even
0: worse. (laughs) Oh, for sure. Well, I mean, and you also think about the individuals involved and you look at front of house employees and you say a lot of them are in it for the disproportionate benefit, right? That they get to do this particular style of work, which comes with pros and cons, but they're working three to four days a week and pulling in 50 to $75,000 a year or however much they think they're making in their particular market that if you actually leveled it out to what was a reasonable wage for the effort, everybody would quit, right? Even if it was $20 an hour. Nobody wants to work for that in this industry.
1: No, and I think, not to harp on this subject, but I remember Danny Meyer tried, and I think that's what he did. He he just gave a wage, and I think what he found, and this is not from him to me, this is just what I heard in the industry, what he found was in some... And I think some employees told some of people that I know that worked for Union Square Hospitality and they're amazing operation, great. I mean, really, they're just unbelievable operators. I think what they found was that to your point, a lot of staff left because they're like, you're paying me $30 an hour. Yeah, but you know what? I could go somewhere else and maybe I'll make 30 in a downside, but on a great night, I could make blah, 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 which would equate to, you know, $75 an hour because I made $500. You know, I'm just, I sold some crazy wines and blah, blah, blah. I think a lot of staff, at least again, going back on, on the fine dining side, I think a lot of the staff love that they can really, if they're really good at their craft, they could like, sell some crazy wines and drinks and do a lot of really great stuff and, and a phenomenal guest experience
0: and bring home a really nice paycheck. If you wanted to educate one of your restaurant founders or even one of your tech founders, what resources would you point them towards to learn and grow? Are there books or podcasts or? Well,
1: they would have to listen to your podcast, obviously. Oh, of I mean, obviously, full, of full comp would be the first place, I would say, go to full comp and listen to all 385 episodes or whatever you're up to now. And so that will keep them busy for a while, right? Yeah, of course. Then I would say, go to the Hospitality Hangout, listen to my podcast. You won't learn a lot, but you'll have a few laughs. Yeah, there we go. And, then, <laughs> and I would like to sit and have coffee with them for an hour and just talk. I think that would be great. And if not me, just someone who's been in the business a long time, and just talk to them. Try and get coffee or, or beer with them for an hour. I think that would be really helpful. Better than a book, in my opinion. Unless it's Danny Meyer's book, <laughs> Setting the Table. I think I'm pretty sure it's Setting
0: the Table. I forget the name.
1: It's been around for a long time. If you can get some really great operators to talk to, I think that's the best, right?
0: Oh, yeah. Last question for you. The restaurant industry is full of all of these unspoken rules and traditions about how things should be done. How would you like to see us turn the tables? to create a better future for all of us.
1: What I saw during COVID, it was really incredible because we talked about technology like online ordering. And online ordering has been around for a long time. It's not new. I mean, we were using a company called Seamless Web. You probably remember. It's now now Grubhub, but it was Seamless Web and it was just for offices. And then people were, this is 20 years ago. 20 years ago, people were faxing in orders to restaurants and restaurants were bringing them food and they were doing it online. And I think the consumer got very much used to it and they loved it. And they're like, wow, this is so super convenient and it doesn't cost me anything. And I can just order food and it comes to me and the restaurant's making money and I'm making money. I mean, I'm getting fed and this is great. And I think COVID hits and I think it shined the light to the consumer of how expensive online ordering is to the restaurant operator that the restaurant was paying for all of the services that you got. So you're getting that free delivery. And you were getting all this everything and, and it was costing the restaurant thirty percent. And I think they didn't know that. And then when things started changing, and then you started charging the op the, the consumers started getting hit with the fees and delivery fees and administrative fees. They started recognizing it. And then you saw customers start picking up their food instead of getting delivery. The reason I say this, I think I think it's an industry that again, we go back to people believe they understand, they believe they know it, and they don't. And I think the more that we can educate our customers, our guests about how things kind of work. And I'm not trying to get too granular to the guests, but just some of those things. If the consumers would have known that we were paying 30% all these years, maybe we would have had a chance to actually change their behavior and let them understand, by the way, do you realize that Grubhub is char- or DoorDash is charging us? And because of that, we have to charge you a little bit. We could have gotten probably to a similar spot a lot sooner and probably save the restaurant operators a lot of money, if that makes sense. So I think some more transparency to an industry that I think it's, like I said, I think because people know how to go out and eat, they know how to probably cook a little bit of food for themselves, they have to make reservations. I think they believe they understand the business. So if we could just educate them a little bit better, that would be good. I think Even just like, think about the credit cards and PCI compliance, which I don't quote, but let's say it's five or seven years old since they changed the whole rules. Every major retailer in America today, you gotta stick your credit card in the chip, right? I mean, or you're tapping. I mean, any big box store, right? And that still holds true for restaurants, but yet almost every restaurant, and you could tell me if this is true for you, Josh, you go to a restaurant, certainly the fine dining restaurants, not the quick serve. You go to a restaurant, you're ready to pay, they come over with a check presenter, a little black thing that usually says like American Express or MasterCard or something like that. You put your credit card in and the waiter leaves, right? I mean, that's like not the process. That's not really, that's not the way the process will still work because that's not a compliant transaction, right? Correct. So I just think that that's like, again, we've done such a horrible job of educating our consumer. And then when you start coming over the devices, they get all weirded out. But again, going back to Europe, anywhere in the world, there's no other place in the world outside of America that the credit card goes into this check presenter and leaves. That only happens in America. It doesn't happen in Canada. It doesn't happen in Mexico. It happens nowhere in Europe. Nowhere in the world. Everywhere else in the world, somebody comes to your table with a device, and you pay right there, and you put, the, and that's the end of it, right? So that's how restaurants even get chargebacks, which is another cost, right? One hundred percent. Josh started bring his podcast down on that. I apologize. <laughs> I'm bringing this down. I'm, I'm bringing this down. But no, but that, it's just it's just funny to me. So I feel like as an industry, we probably could do a better job educating our guests,
0: our customers,
1: about how things are and why. And that might help us all in the long run. I don't know whose job it is. Maybe it's Josh. You're the evangelist for this.
0: Yeah, it's I am the evangelist, but I'm not going to anybody's restaurant telling them how to do it. <laughs> I agree. I agree. Yeah. And by the way, there'll be a guy who is like, no, 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 we don't do it that way. Yeah, no. It's But it is funny though, right? Our industry suffers from razor thin margins. And the only way for us to ensure profitability is to make data-driven decisions. The numbers don't lie. And Yelp for Restaurants just released some incredibly compelling numbers. For starters, Yelp reaches nine times more customers online than OpenTable. And would restaurants pair that level of visibility with guest manager and Yelp ads, they experience up to an 8% lift in diner bookings. Think about what that 8% lift could do for your restaurant's finances. To learn more about how Yelp for Restaurants can support your business, visit restaurants.yelp.com forward slash full comp to learn more today. That's Michael Schatzberg. For more information on branded strategic and branded hospitality, visit brandedstrategic.com. If you want to tell us your story, hear previous episodes, or check out our other content, go to restaurants.yelp.com forward slash full comp. Thank you so much for listening to the show. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. While you're there, please leave us a review. A special thanks to Yelp for helping us spread the word to the whole hospitality community. I'm Josh Kopel. You've been listening to Full Comp.